Our scripture text for today is Matthew 6, verses 5 through 8. If you would read along, I'll read them to you here. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Do you sometimes feel like there's nothing harder in the Christian life than prayer? I know I feel that way. Martin Luther felt that way. He said that it was a far more difficult thing to pray than it was to preach. And it's common to find many Christians serving and doing things for the Lord, filling their schedules with many good things in order to avoid prayer because prayer is hard. And many Christians try to walk this perfect line in prayer, and they, they kind of get this mentality that if they don't think or say just the right things, then God's going to have nothing to do with them. Kind of like Linus as he's talking about the Great Pumpkin. You know, each October my family watches it's a, uh, the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. And Linus is standing in his pumpkin patch defending to his mocking friends why he's standing there all night. And, he, and as they're walking away, he yells after him. He says, if the Great Pumpkin comes, I'll still put in a good word for you. And then he catches himself and he says, oh, good grief. I said, if. It one slip of the tongue like that and the Great Pumpkin might pass you by forever. And a lot of times that's how people treat God. They think he's going to pass them by if they don't come just right. I personally went through a terribly dark time as a teenager doubting my salvation because one day I realized I couldn't remember the words I said when I was four. And I wondered if I didn't say the right words in my prayer, did God save me? It tormented me. You see, I've never met a Christian who says that prayer isn't important. But almost every Christian I've ever met has said that they want to do better in prayer. I know I want to grow in prayer. And if you're like me, Jesus helps us here. He helps us here. In this passage, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to help us learn to pray, just as he helped his disciples to learn to pray. And I believe that what Jesus says in verses 5 through 8 will meet many of us right where we are in this worthy struggle to know God more. So let's see how these four verses, which are the verses that lead us into the Lord's Prayer, which we'll consider in sermons to come, Let's see how these teach us how to pray, how they help us. See, we're in a section on the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is breaking down what it means to have genuine righteousness in your relationship with God. Okay, so in the, in the main section in Matthew 5, the chapter just before, from verse 21 on, Jesus focuses in on how to have heart-level righteousness rather than surface-level righteousness like the Pharisees, how to have heart-level righteousness in your dealings with other people such as don't murder them, don't cheat on your spouse, don't lie, honor your commitments, things of that nature. That's how, how you behave righteously toward others. And most of what he talked about had to do with loving your neighbor from your heart. And then we turn the corner here into Matthew chapter 6. And beginning with verse 1, he brings our devotion to God into focus. So he moves us from this horizontal plane to this vertical relationship. See, how you relate to your neighbor has to do with righteousness, but so does how you relate to God. And in chapter 6, he focuses in on our relationship with God 
as how we relate to him in a heart-deep and genuine way. And this is the main idea in verse 1. So if you see here this, this main verse, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. That's the main idea, and then he's going to break down what that looks like. First, in our almsgiving, or giving to the poor, then in our prayer life, and then in fasting. Okay, so that's what's going on in this first half of Matthew 6. And here in verses 5 through 8, we have an in-depth look at what true Christian prayer looks like, the kind of prayer that pleases the Father. And I don't know any Christian who isn't interested in pleasing the Father in their prayers. And what we see right off the bat in verse 5 is that Christians are praying people. Hey, Christians are praying people. How do we know this? Well, Jesus didn't say, and if you pray, what does he say? When you pray. When you pray. There's no if, there's only when. And the reason that he assumes that the people who are listening to the Sermon on the Mount will be praying people is because of who he's speaking to in the Sermon on the Mount. This is a gospel sermon from first to last. He's he's speaking to his disciples who follow him. And we know that because this whole thing got started off with these things called the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are a picture of the true Christian life. The the picture of a person who's been radically changed by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. The poor in spirit who mourn over their sins, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and knowing they have none, come to the only one who can give it to them, Jesus Christ, the righteous. It is through their faith in him that they live the kind of life that he starts to, uh, to get into in a deep way in the Sermon on the Mount. And so unless the gospel comes first, there is no Sermon on the Mount for you because it's not meant for you. Jesus first, righteousness next. That's the order. That's the logic of the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking to people who have eternal life, who were once dead in their trespasses and sins and now have life through Christ. And Josh in his prayer already referenced what eternal life is. Jesus defines it for us clearly as he's praying to the Father just before his arrest. In John 17, 3, Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God through Jesus Christ, having a relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A relationship you can never have on your own because you're dead in your trespasses and sins. And so it's a relationship purchased for you by the blood of God's Son, who took your sins on himself at the cross and rose again and ascended to the Father. In other words, it's an eternal life bought for us through the gospel. And that gospel becomes good news for us as we turn from our sins and trust in Jesus Christ alone. He says that he is the way to the Father, and all who trust in him and turn from sin are brought into relationship with the living God. Remember, Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And he meant it. He still means it. Christians have a relationship with the one true God, and that's how we know that Christians are praying people, because prayer is talking to God. That's it. Prayer is talking to God in relationship with him through his son. That's prayer. And this is where things get a little uncomfortable. 
This is where things get uncomfortable because prayer is one of the most basic parts of the normal Christian life and probably the most neglected and anemic. And that's a problem. Jesus here assumes that his people pray because there's no such thing as a true Christian who never prays. There's no such thing as a true Christian who never prays. Yes, there may be times of spiritual depression where you go for a stretch without prayer. Okay, that, that's normal. But the idea of a Christian who comes to Christ by faith and then never prays is completely foreign to Scripture. And, and there's nothing of it in the pages of the New Testament. One of the most significant Christian leaders of the 19th century, J.C. Ryle, wrote a paper on prayer in his book, Practical Religion. And in there, he says this. He says, I can find that nobody will be saved by his prayers, but I cannot find that without prayer, anybody will be saved. If we wish to be with God in heaven, we must be his friends on earth. Sit with that for a moment. If we wish to be with God in heaven, we must be his friends on earth. I believe that's a faithful understanding of what the Bible teaches on the Christian life. But again, be careful about the order, because this is where it's easy to substitute law for gospel. It's not by the praying that we're saved. Do you hear that? It is not that anybody will be saved by his prayers, but anybody who is saved will be praying. And so he says, I cannot find that without prayer anybody will be saved. See, the only way of salvation, the only way of knowing God is by faith, laying hold of Christ who died for your sins and rose again, that he might do what? That he might bring you to God. That's it. That's the only way of salvation. There is no other way. But what does it mean to come to God except to come to God? You see, being brought into saving relationship to God and having your sins forgiven means that you will know God. And the way we have relationship to God is by hearing him in his word and talking to him in prayer. Jesus knows this, and he says, when you pray. And so my question for you who identify with Christ is simply this. Do you pray? Do you pray? And what I'm not asking is I'm not asking if your prayer life is polished or deep. I'm not asking if you hit a certain time marker in your morning devotions. I'm asking, do you pray? Do you know God? That's it. Do you know God? And if you're here today and you haven't come to the Father through his Son, I would ask this, how come? How come? When you see the Savior hanging on a bloodied cross for your salvation, offering freely all who come to me, I will give you rest. Why? Why do you tarry? Today, the scriptures say, is the day of salvation. If you do not know the Father, know him now, trust in Christ now, and have forgiveness now, and know God. And when you pray, he will hear you. Jesus assumes that his disciples will pray because Christians are praying people. Christians are praying people. But Jesus also assumes that we need help. And I'm glad he assumes that because I need help. I think I'm not alone. You see, we may be sinners saved by grace, but we're still sinners. That's how this goes, right? We're sinners saved by grace, but we're still sinners. We still struggle with sin. Are we redeemed and renewed? Yes, absolutely, and thanks be to God. But still sinners. 
And being the gracious Savior that he is, Jesus helps poor sinners like us out of the pitfalls that we easily get into in prayer. He doesn't leave us where we are. He shows us a better way. He never convicts except to heal. He never confronts except to comfort. And he comforts us here even as he shows us where we may get tripped up. And here in verses 5 through 6, he shows us something vital about the kind of prayer that pleases the Father. And what he does is that he shows us that the Christians pray for the Father's eyes only. Okay, Christians pray for the Father's eyes only, not for the eyes of others. So verses 5 through 6, he says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. You see, there's a kind of praying that's hypocritical. And the Jews that Jesus was preaching to here knew it well. They knew what it looked like because it was pretty public. They would often see um, so-called righteous people standing on street corners in a very obvious way. Oh, I didn't know that you knew I was so holy. Whoops. Yeah, that's what they did. And, they knew, and so they knew what it looked like. It looked like the kind of praying that drew attention from everyone in the area. And so let's look at here in verse 5 what hypocritical prayer looks like. Now, it wasn't in the standing, okay? He says, you know, they love to stand and pray in the synagogues. That, that, the standing wasn't the issue. It was actually pretty normal to stand in prayer. Most Jews would. So stand, the posture wasn't the problem, okay? It wasn't what made these praying hypocrites hypocritical. And it wasn't where they were praying either, which may seem less obvious, the street corners or the synagogues. That also was a pretty common thing because the Jews were a praying people. In Acts, we read about Peter and John going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, it says, which then was three o'clock. And there would be these normal set times that most devout Jews would observe, 9 a.m., noon, three o'clock, okay? There were morning prayers and there were evening prayers. And by the time of Christ, there were often set forms of prayer that many Jews would recite. And so if you were walking on the street, you were going to Winco or whatever, and, and you're on your way back to your car, and it's three o'clock, you'd stop and you'd stand and, and you'd pray. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. Okay, that's not what Jesus is singling out. What Jesus is warning against here is the motivation that these hypocrites had in praying on the streets. He says they do this that they may be seen by others. See, they had others' eyes in view, and not the Father's eyes. That was the problem. The word Jesus uses for street here referred not just to, you know, your city residential street, it referred to a main street. And so these people would go, they would make sure that they were on one of those main thoroughfares at just the right time so that, oh no, I have to stop and pray because I love God. And oops, there's a lot of people around. So imagine going down, making sure that around three o'clock you were at first in Yakav, okay, so that you could get down on your knees and that everybody would know that person, that person is holy, okay? You would have the esteem of others. Maybe the ridicule of some, but the esteem for sure. And the kind of thing was, that was going on, Jesus is confronting and he's saying, don't, 
pray like that. Don't, don't draw attention to yourself. This isn't about you. This is about God. We pray for God. We pray to God and for his glory, not our own. Praying in the synagogue could kind of become the same kind of thing, but maybe that was a little more subtle, right? Because the synagogue to Israelites was, in a sense, kind of like church to us. It was the place where local Jews gathered to worship God and study the Bible. And what a natural place to pray, right? I mean, we have prayer meetings in our church, kind of like tonight at 530, right? So that's public, that's prayer, that takes place at church in front of other people. But there's a way to pray in church that draws attention to yourself, that draws attention to yourself and really puts yourself at the center of your focus, and perhaps even gets others to focus on you as well. Pastors here can be terribly tempted to fall into that kind of a pattern in public prayer, but it's not just pastors. Sometimes I fall into that trap. We, you know, we know when we're at the center of our attention because who's not there? God's not there. Okay, sadly, it's easy for us to come before God in worship and not think much of God at all. Everything else seems to cascade into our focus, our schedule, the, the things that we have to do, um, the problems that we had this morning at home, and, and kind of you get to the end of it and you go, I'm not sure that I met with God at all. Martin Luther, Martin Luther famously talked about sin as curving in on yourself instead of having a posture upward toward God. And perhaps we see this no more evident than in our natural bent to put ourselves at the center of prayer and worship. And that's what hypocritical prayer does. It puts itself at the center of its praying and of its worship. And the reward is that you're at the center of your praying and of your worship. And so Jesus says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And, and literally what he's saying is they've received their reward in full. In other words, when they stand before God, all that praying they did for their own acclaim, their own acclaim is what they're going to get. That's it. They're not getting God. They're not getting any of his rewards. They are the end unto themselves. Enjoy. Seek your glory from others, and that's all you get. But Jesus shows us a better way in verse 6 when he says this. But when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Uh, you go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay? Here we see what genuine prayer looks like. In contrast to hypocritical prayer, this is genuine prayer. So in a, a typical first century Jewish house, you would have an inner room, a, a pantry or a storage room, a place, it was often the only time, um, the only room in the house that actually had a door. And you would store um, food stuff, uh, valuables you could store in there. It's your room, store what you want. Uh, it was the place where you could keep those things out of the view of other people. And in contrast to hypocritical prayer that tries to draw attention to yourself, Jesus says that his disciples need to get alone with God even if it means going into the inner room or the storage closet to do it. When you pray, get alone with God. Have concern for his eyes only, not for anybody else's, including your own. Because when you pray, it's a conversation with God, not with anybody else. And so if the point is that hypocritical prayer is for others' eyes, then genuine prayer is for the Father's eyes. 
And, and getting back to our prayer meeting, I'm sure that someone's asking, pr- probably a teenager, what gives? You say don't pray in front of other people, why are you having a prayer meeting? And honestly, that's a reasonable question, isn't it? I mean, how, to what extent do we take Jesus' words here? What exactly does he mean, and how does it fit in with the fact that Jesus himself prayed with his disciples, that the early church gathered in the temple, which was a very public place, and prayed together? How is this supposed to work? Is there a contradiction? And of course the answer is, well, if Jesus and the disciples did it, then no, there's no contradiction. Because Jesus is never going to contradict what he himself is saying. God doesn't do that. Okay? So, the issue is the heart. The issue is the heart. And if you understand that, all of a sudden, the whole of the Sermon on the Mount makes sense. Jesus is after your heart. He's after you. A heart for God's glory prays for the Father's eyes only, even if others are around physically. A heart for your own glory prays for the eyes of others, so they'll think much of you. Genuine prayers for the Father's eyes only, and like here in verse 6, it will take steps to minimize distractions. That was another function of Jesus' command to go into the inner room and shut the door. So you're shutting out all the distractions that so naturally get in there. Okay? If you go into the inner room and shut the door, you're shutting yourself alone with God and not allowing anything else in. Now, how does this look for us today? How do we do that? All the rooms in our house have doors. So do we have to go to a certain particular room? I mean, what does this look like? Well, it looks like this. Whether you're alone or with others, you can take steps to devote your attention to God and to God alone. So kids, right? Your parents say, bow your head and close your eyes. Here's the tip. They don't tell you that because there's anything especially holy about bowing your head and closing your eyes. Okay, there's not. The idea is if you close your eyes and bow your head, you're more focused. There's not as many distractions. There's the brilliance of it, okay? Most of your parents' counsel is very practical in that way, okay? You're just trying to keep things out that distract you and take your attention off of God. And for all of us, it's going to get personal, do not hate me, put away your phone. Never before have so many distractions gotten into so many places where before it was just you and you alone, okay? Your phone is the world at your fingertips, so put it away for God's sake. And you say, but I read my Bible on my phone. Okay, put it on airplane mode. Put it on do not disturb. I don't care how you do it. Get alone with God, okay? God can work through your phone just as he can through your printed Bible, but your printed Bible and your phone are no good if you're just getting distracted all the time. You know you check Facebook during devotions. You know how I know? I'm just kidding, I have no idea. But I mean, Facebook knows, Google knows, China knows. Put the phone away. Whether you're praying in your bedroom or praying in your living room or praying at church or out on a prayer walk, identify your distractions and discipline yourself to put them away. Pray for the Father's eyes only without distraction. And Jesus helps us to pray by showing a second pitfall that we can fall into in verses 7 and 8. He says, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Okay? Um, 
Christians not only pray for the Father's eyes only, but they pray purposefully. That's the idea here. They pray purposefully. They pray purposefully. So if Jesus just finished showing us what hypocritical prayer looks like in verse 5, then in verse 7, Jesus shows us what worthless prayer looks like, which is empty prayer. If you've got a jar full of nothing, it's worth nothing. And if your prayer is empty, it's worthless. Okay? And how do you know what worthless prayer looks like? Well, it's what the Gentiles do. And when Jesus is using the word Gentiles here, he's not simply referring to people who aren't Jews. He's using it in a particular way. He's referring to people who do not know and worship the God of Scripture. They were those who did not know the one true God of Israel. They often were very busy praying to Baal or to, um, you know, Zeus or Apollos or, you know, any of the other gods. But they weren't praying to the one true God. They were Gentiles. Another word is pagans. And Jesus says that they heap up empty phrases. They heap up empty phrases. Heap up empty. There's four English words to actually translate one Greek word. Batologeo. Batologeo. Well, what does that mean? Well, actually, it's one of those words that means what it sounds like. It, they babbled. Batologeo. It's babbling. They babbled in prayer. The Gentiles babbled on in their prayer, supposing that as long as they were flapping their lips, maybe, just maybe, God was hearing. They supposed that they would be heard for their many prayers. And probably the best example of this in the Bible is when Elijah went up against the 450 prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. Remember what the Baal guys did? They spent from morning till noon just flapping their lips, praying, Baal, hear us, come and receive our sacrifice. And then when he didn't, because number one, he doesn't exist, they, they kept, oh, I know, we'll dance. You know, okay, we're going to move out of Baptist mode into dancing mode. Maybe he'll see us. And when that didn't work, they start cutting themselves. Now they need therapy. And the, it, it, what does Elijah do? He comes up and he says, you know, louder, uh, bigger dance moves. You know what? He's probably relieving himself. And what does Elijah do? He, he briefly prays. He doesn't babble on. And what does God do? Whew, fire from heaven. God hears his people's prayers. He doesn't need their babbling. God doesn't need our empty words. He needs our hearts. He needs our hearts. Prayer that heaps up words without being purposeful is worthless prayer. You see, there's nothing at all wrong with praying long prayers. Jesus prayed all night. The disciples prayed. Your godly grandmother prays. Okay? But there's a difference between a long prayers full of empty words versus long prayers that do something. Praying the rosary is a way that Catholicism heaps up empty phrases over and over, moving up and down beads, reciting the same words like their magic incantations, empty phrases. Buddhism has prayer wheels that if you spin them, they're thought to send up prayers, and so you just keep spinning that thing. The prayers are going up. Hinduism uses repetitive mantras that are supposed to have sacred value, but literally they're gibberish, empty phrases. Jesus says, don't be like that. Don't pray that way. Almost all of the world's religions value prayer, and they do exactly what Jesus warns against here. They heap up empty phrases, thinking that because of their many words, they'll be heard by God. But biblical prayer is very different from this. The kind of prayer that pleases the Father, the kind that he gladly receives, can't come from anyone other than his children. Only those who come to the Father through faith in Jesus Christ will be heard. 
Proverbs 28 and verse 9 says, If anyone turns his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. You want to get to the heart of all lawlessness? Turn away from Jesus Christ. That's the heart of all lawlessness is unbelief. And so it's categorically impossible that somebody who doesn't know Christ would offer to God prayers that he would hear and honor. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you want God to hear your prayers, you must repent and believe in the gospel and come to him through his son. You must follow Christ in repentant faith or your praying is just noise. And yet, sadly, it's easy for Christians to talk to the Father exactly like people who don't know him. How does that happen? What does it look like? I don't know what it looks like for you, but one way that I personally fall into this is I'll catch myself repeating the same phrases over and over just by habit without even thinking too much about it. I'm, I'm personally, I'm a prayer walker. I like to pray and walk. It kind of helps me. And I'll realize if I get so far in my walk, spending time on confession of sin, I've fallen into empty phrases. You know how you can do that? Kind of, you can just kind of confess until you feel forgiven. Or you can just repeat something good like, Lord, have mercy, until you feel like maybe you've gone far enough. But that is so unbiblical. It's a totally unbiblical way to pray for two reasons. One, it's really easy to lose train of thought and fill in thoughtlessness uh, with familiar phrases like, I don't know, for me, like, Lord, have mercy, or holy, holy, holy. Things that are biblical, things that in and of themselves are good, things that we should be praying, but we become so familiar with them that we can say them without realizing what we're saying. And that's exactly the kind of empty prayer that Jesus is preaching against. And for a second thing, when I heap up empty phrases, even biblical phrases, I'm, I'm failing to take God at his word that he hears my prayers. See, he hears us when we pray. He doesn't need us to meet a quota. Another way that Christians can fall into the trap of worthless prayers by mindlessly repeating the same prayers at mealtime and at bedtime. You know that same, you know, mealtime prayer that you've been praying for 20 years? It's okay to change it up a little. See, Jesus himself set this example of praying before his meals. But I guarantee you he didn't do it thoughtlessly, and he didn't just say the same things over and over. And we have enough variety just in the fact that we eat different food each meal. Thank him for the specific food. Maybe that's the way to start. But whatever we're doing, let us not approach God with mindless repetition. Now, this is tricky. How about liturgy? How about liturgy? Using liturgy in worship like we do is both beautiful and dangerous. It brings the danger of familiarity, bringing emptiness in our hearts and minds. How many times have you found yourself going through the liturgical prayer going through the motions, but not actually coming to God in true worship. How many times have you prayed, Father, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done, by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, or loved our neighbors as ourselves. That is a great prayer. But unless we mean what we pray, unless we're praying purposefully, it's worthless. And of course, as good American evangelicals, how often have we used God's name, Father, as filler, usually attaching the word just. Father, I just pray, Father, yes, God, and Father, just, we just pray that you'd Father, Father, Father. If that's not taking the Lord's name in vain, I don't know what is. 
God doesn't need our filler. He doesn't need us to take his name in vain. It's so much easier than we'd like to think to heap up empty phrases in worthless prayer. But again, thanks be to God, Jesus shows us a better way. He shows us a better way in verse 8. He says, do not be like them, heaping up those empty phrases, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. We don't have to babble on in prayer with worthless words that are meaningless. As a Christian, you pray to a Father who knows what you say before you say it, and he doesn't need to make sure to make sure that he's hearing you. He does hear you through his Son. He receives you gladly, so come with weighty prayer, which is to say, prayer that is purposeful. Weighty prayer is purposeful prayer. Empty prayer is babbling prayer. So consider that contrast for just a moment. If worthless prayer is mindlessly repeating the same things over and over, hoping that God will hear, then weighty prayer is choosing your words purposefully and knowing that God hears. Far better 15 minutes of concentrated prayer than an hour of mindless prayer. Okay? Far better. Know God. Imagine that you had an appointment with a well-known author or an actor whom you really admire. And what are the odds that as you go to sit down with this person that you just mindlessly babble? I've met a couple of famous uh, pastors in my time, and especially when I was in my 20s, I, I, there was a time where I babbled on about my story and what an impact you had made, Dr. Albert Muller. And at the end of my eloquent babbling, which I couldn't, I don't know what, I probably had too much coffee, and I was excited to meet him. Uh, he said, all I wanted him to do was sign a book. He said, what's your name? Which is double bad because Albert Muller has a photographic memory. So I told him my name, I babbled on, and he couldn't even remember my name. We don't need to babble on. In fr- now, God is so much greater than Albert Moeller. God is so much greater than your most esteemed author or actor or whomever it is that you admire. And he wants your prayers to be purposeful and for his eyes only because he wants your heart and he wants your presence. Yeah, and he loves you. He loves you. And a question I know at least some of you are thinking is, well, if God knows what I'm going to pray before I pray it, then why should, why should we pray at all? Isn't it enough that he knows what I need and he promises to meet my needs? Now, that's a sermon in itself, okay? So I'm not going to go there, except I will give you three brief, I'll mention three brief reasons why that should not keep you from prayer, this thing that God knows what you need. First, God commands you to pray. It's all over scripture from beginning to end, but just to take one, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. End of story, okay? He commands it, so do it. But second, you need it. You need it. If you're a Christian, you're locked in a spiritual battle. And in Ephesians 6.18, Paul says to pray in the Spirit on all occasions because this is the only way that you're going to stand against the devil. And third, God is worth it. God is worth it. Eternal life is knowing God through Jesus Christ, and you can't know God without knowing God. So know him. Spend time with him. Dive into his presence and treasure his beauty. As we saw in Psalm 27, the Lord says, seek my face. And we say, your face, Lord, do I seek. And take heart. Because you pray to a gracious and giving father. You pray to a gracious and giving father. 
So what does Jesus say at the end of verse 6 after he tells you to pray to your father who is in secret? He says, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. If you're in Christ, then your father loves you and will reward you for coming. Not in a put a quarter in the prayer machine, turn the wheel, and out pops your reward kind of a way. No, we're not coming to a machine. We're coming to the living God who loves us, who knows us. And when we come to that God in genuine prayer, he gives us nothing less than himself. And friend, can you think of anything more rewarding than God himself? Your father who sees in secret will reward you. You have a gracious father and you have a giving father and he knows what you need before you ask him and that means he's primed to give you what you need. James calls him the father of lights from whom all good gifts come. And so come, come to your gracious father who is giving. Come to him with purposeful prayer and delight in him and I promise you will never, not once, be sorry. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, thank you that you are good. Thank you that you know all things. Thank you for giving us your Son, through whom we come into relationship with you. We are grateful to be able to, over the next several sermons here in the Lord's Prayer, dive into the Lord's Prayer. And we pray, Father, that as we do, that you would do what the disciples asked of Jesus so many years ago. Lord, teach us to pray. Forgive us for the ways that we have heaped up empty phrases in our prayers, the ways that we have been distracted in our prayers, the ways that we have sought our own glory in our prayers. Forgive us for your son's sake. And through him, help us by your spirit to pray purposeful prayers that are for your eyes only, that we may bring you glory and know you in spirit and truth. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.